If you were offered the opportunity to make your home anywhere you chose, any real place on the face of the earth, our initial emotional impulse might be to pick some uh, favorite uh, popular tourist spot or some place that's exotic and feels like a holiday. Or maybe we're a city folk and would prefer to have access to all the culture that the great cities of the world offer. Or maybe we're into nature and would choose some remote, isolated, uh, natural spot. But when we considered further just what the consequences and the situations might be, we might begin to get a little more logical or rational and, and look a little closer at the political and economic and climactic conditions. And if we continue imagining very far, imagining moving there and settling in and getting involved in the day-to-day uh, to-do of living any place we begin to discover that we brought a lot of baggage with us. That in fact, uh, you know, there's distractions and disturbances and limitations to the uh, goodness or the suitability of any place. We'd notice what was easy and what was difficult with wherever we chose to live. Even with a brief reflection, we'd have to conclude or have to seriously question whether there really is any Shangri-La for us, whether there's any ideal place to live. And even to go a little deeper and consider what is it that actually creates that feeling of home? The real question is not so much where we choose to live, but how we choose to relate to where we already are. And we can see that very clearly, very um, precisely in our work here. How we choose to relate to the way things are determines whether we feel at home or like an alien, a foreigner. In order to discover the qualities or the attributes of any place or location for a home, we'd need to look very carefully at the way things are with that place. I have a short story to talk about that process of learning to observe and see carefully the way things are. Oh, back in the mid-1800s, there was a famous Swiss naturalist uh, became famous by studying glaciers. And uh, he came on tour in America and um, gave a series of lectures in the big cities about glaciers and other interesting things in the natural world. And he became very popular, and Harvard University invited him to teach there. And 
because he was so popular and so creative and innovative as a teacher, many graduate students wanted him to be their mentor. And so with the application for his mentorship, there was a personal interview. And one of his students wrote this about that interview. He said when the initial interview was at an end, Louis Agassi, Louis Agassi was the, uh, the naturalist, he asked the student when he would like to begin, and the answer was then. The student was immediately presented with a dead fish. Usually, it was a very long dead, pickled, evil-smelling specimen, personally selected by the master from one of the wide mouth jars that lined his shelves. The fish was placed before the student in a tin pan, and he or she was told to look at the fish, whereupon Agassiz would leave, not to return until later in the day, if at all. Samuel Scudder was one of those students, and he described his experience as one of his life's most memorable turning points. He wrote, In ten minutes, I had seen all that could be seen of that fish. Half an hour passed, an hour, another hour. The fish began to look loathsome. I turned it over and around. I looked it in the face, ghastly. I looked at it from behind, beneath, above, sideways, at three-quarters view, just as ghastly. I was in despair. I could not use a magnifying glass as instruments of all kinds were prohibited. My two hands, my two eyes, and the fish. It seemed a most limited field. I pushed my finger down its throat to feel how sharp the teeth were. I began to count the scales in the different rows until I discovered that that was nonsense. At last, a happy thought struck me. I would draw the fish. And now, with surprise, I began to discover new features in the creature. When Agassiz returned later and listened to Scudder recount what he had observed, his only comment was that the young man must look again. Scudder continues, I was piqued. I was mortified. Still more of that wretched fish. But now I set myself to my task with a will and discovered one new thing after another. The afternoon passed quickly and when toward its close, the professor inquired, Do you see it yet? No, I replied, I am certain I do not, but I see how little I saw before. The following day, having thought of the fish through most of the night, Scudder had a brainstorm. The fish, he announced to Agassiz, had symmetrical sides with paired organs. Of course, of course, Agassiz said, obviously pleased. Look, 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 was the repeated Injunction and the best lesson he ever had, a legacy of inestimable value, which he could not buy and with which he could not part. What we are learning to do here is look, to observe, to see our life. In a sense, we are becoming scientists of ourself, of what we call I, me, or this being. Such observation, such careful, continuous, precise acknowledgement of what this is leads to wisdom.
that power of observation, that ability to look, not only to look, but the ability to see the way things are, is one quality of mindfulness, one of the meanings of sati, or mindfulness. And as such, sati, or mindfulness, is the natural awareness of the mind when it is undistracted. When our attention carefully connects with and is sustained on the momentary experience, whatever is predominant, then we can observe it, we can see it, we can notice it, we can recognize it. This noticing, this natural awareness, is in the present time. It's present time participatory awareness. Not separate from the experience, not lost in the experience, but connected to and participating in the experience knowingly. An attitude that's helpful in cultivating this ability to observe is to posture your mind with the question, what is this? What is this experience right now? What is most predominant in my experience? And in that asking of the question, turning the mind to see, to look, to connect, and hopefully to recognize what indeed is calling our attention. And if we can recognize it, to label it, to identify it. Because labeling or identifying, recognizing, is one of the conditions which supports the continuity of mindfulness. When we can recognize what the momentary experience is, it carries and supports mindfulness into the next moment. This power of observation, one quality. Second quality of sati, or mindfulness, is remembering, not forgetting. Remembering to attend to the present moment, as another teacher may have already acknowledged. It's not difficult to be mindful. It's difficult to remember to be mindful. When the mind is directed, it's easy to recognize, to be present. It's difficult to remember to do that. When we find ourselves suddenly coming to, after a long drift in thought, and recognizing presence of mind in that moment, that is a moment of unconditioned mindfulness. Just the instant, easy, spontaneous recognition of being present. The trick or the task we have is to extend that recognition 
or that presence of mind into the next moment, whatever its experience may be, and the subsequent one. One time in my first three-month retreat with Saito Upandita, I was particularly frustrated and uh, very tense and uh, disappointed in my own practice. Uh, Extreme comparing and judging mind going on. And just thought that everybody was doing much better than myself. And out of sheer frustration and uh, anger, I one time... Uh, blurted out in my interview with him. What's this practice all about anyway? What are we supposed to be doing? Remembering our past lives or something? (laughs) And Upandita says, no, no. Remembering this life. (laughs) Just remembering to be present in this life. Mindfulness, the power of observation remembering to be present, also implies a certain degree of diligence, a certain degree of continuity. For one moment of mindfulness does not arise without conditions. Mindfulness supports mindfulness. Recognition supports mindfulness. And so there's a quality of um, sensitive, ever-present presentness carrying into the next moment when mindfulness is present. Such mindfulness, such careful observation of our life, supported by recognition, of course, labeling, but strong intention to be present, strong determination, a setting the mind in the direction of being present. Energy, right effort that I've spoken about before, and careful application of our mind. The Buddha in his teaching was really a supreme scientist, having looked very carefully at his own life to discover what leads to happiness, what leads to suffering. Taught what he had observed and discovered was the way leading to the end of suffering. And in the Satipatthana Sutta, the discourse on mindfulness, considered by many, maybe to be the most important discourse of the Buddha, he talks about mental development, developing the mind, in order to free the mind of its distortions and its misunderstandings, both through the development of concentration and wisdom, understanding. He says, For the purification of beings, for overcoming sorrow, distress, for the disappearance of pain and sadness, for the realization of the liberated mind, one should abide ardent, clearly aware and mindful of the arising and vanishing of the four foundations for mindfulness. The four foundations for mindfulness 
are the four places, the four experiences we have where mindfulness can be established, where we can observe, remember, and be diligent moment to moment. These experiences, these four foundations, individually and or collectively, are what are thought to be myself, I, who I am. What are they? What are these four foundations? What is this collective that we identify with so strongly as who I am? The four are the body or material experience, feelings of pleasantness or unpleasantness, the mind in its many innumerable manifestations, and the contents of mind, the dhammas. The first rupa or the body, material experience, one half of this mind-body process that we are, most easily identified, most easily attached to, as who we are. Culturally, our conditioning is to strongly, firmly identify with the body, our own body, as who we are to see it as the source for our happiness in life, to see it as the source for the pleasure in life, and to see it as an appearance only, to dwell with our body as how it's reflected in the mirror. The premium is on youthfulness, beauty, energy, smoothness, thinness. And the mass communication in our culture continually places before us images and the uh, appearance of the perfect body. Whether it's Hollywood or models, we have in front of us images that we inevitably compare ourselves with. And such comparison, for most of us, leads to a pretty uh, not enjoyable judgment. Either leading to shame, if we feel, if we feel less or inadequate, or pride, if we feel equivalent to. Not only traditionally are there standards of beauty, but we have now the new age body. You know, the body that gets the right amount of exercise, the right amount of uh, supplements, the right diet, the right fresh air, at the right locations in the world with the right vibrations. (laughs) Somehow imagining that if we get it all right, we'll live happily ever after. The magazines are still selling. Evidently, they haven't worked. I was in Burma 
uh, in traveling in Upper Burma. And I was with one Burmese monk who could speak English, and we were just wandering around this place called Sagain Hills. Sagain Hills is across the river from Mandalay, and it is a series of hills stretching out over several miles, and it is covered, just absolutely covered, with monasteries, nunneries, and uh, hermitages, caves and, and buildings where monks, nuns, and solitary uh, and groups of people live. And that's, that's, it's just covered. And there's ten, more than 10,000 monks and nuns there. And so you just wander around here from one monastery to the next, to a, a pagoda, to a, a hermitage, and just, it's quite interesting. And at one point we came to this uh, rather isolated, uh, run-down uh, place, and uh, we went in, and there was, uh, after a short while, this tall monk came out. And I could see he was really a good-looking monk, but he was quite old. Uh, he was in, in his 70s, maybe. And um, he was speaking with the Burmese monk that I was with, and uh, he acknowledged that back in the 40s or something like that, he was the most famous movie star in Burma. And he had been in a, a real famous movie in Burma that had been popular for years, and still popular, you know, the Cary Grant or the whoever it is of uh, Hollywood of Burma. And he said that at the time he was the most easily recognized, most popular person in Burma. And just, just really ideal, idolized, idealized by the whole country. And he said that that life was less preferable to the, sol to the solitary existence he was living in his cave. And he had the very simple cave, and there wasn't a thing in it except a place to sit and a passageway leading to a walking chamber where he would just walk out of sight of everyone all day. That was his practice, preferable to the Hollywood glamour of Burma. Well, maybe. I was just trying to imagine Paul Newman, you know, Robert Redford, a few of those guys, so Merle Streep, just kind of leaving the scene and going into solitary practice. <laughs> Maybe. The task for us to awaken is not so much to live with the perfect body, to cultivate the perfect body, to see that reflection in the mirror, but rather to learn how to live or inhabit the body, how to live in the body, how to make our home here rather than the mirror. The Buddha, in coming to terms with his body, observed carefully the nature of his experience, his physical experience. And in that, he didn't use any uh, books or descriptions of what it should be, but rather his own awareness. And what he discovered in the body as physical experience is metaphorically represented as the four elements, earth, air, fire, and water. Initially, like we too, 
when he observed his body, it was, you know, anatomy. Arms, legs, heads, things like that. And then there was movement and uh, pressure and tingling and tightness and vibration. And collectively he could begin to understand that all that he directly experienced was hardness and softness, motion, vibration or pulsation, heat or cold, or a sense of cohesion. The four elements, earth as hardness or softness, pressure, the air element is pulsating, tingling, pricking, itching, stabbing. The heat element or fire element as heat or cold or any variety thereof. These abstract elements, when we really tune in to our body, is all that we experience. When we drop from the level of concept about what this body is and settle into the actual experience and inhabit the body, this is what we notice. And yet, Fritjof Capra, in his book, The Turning Point, acknowledges that there really is no material thing in the universe. He writes, subatomic particles are not made of any material stuff. They have a certain mass, but this mass is a form of energy. Energy is a form of activity. The energy patterns of the subatomic world form stable atomic and molecular structures which build up matter and give it its solid appearance, thus making us believe that it is made, that it is made of some material substance. At the everyday level, macroscopically, the notion of a substance is quite useful, but at the atomic level it makes no sense. Atoms consist of particles, and these particles are not made of any material thing. When we observe them, we never see any substance. What we observe are dynamic patterns continually changing into one another, a continuous dance of energy. When we look carefully at this body, what we see is a continuous dance of energy. Other material experience, of course, sights, sounds, tastes, smells, and anything in the body. Painful, pleasant, harsh, subtle, gross. Where do they come from? Where did this body come from? Why do we experience the experiences we do in the body? What causes it to be this way? The Buddha, in his investigation of these questions, didn't question whether or didn't attempt to explain the ultimate origin of matter, much like astrophysicists are trying to find the source of the universe. The Buddha merely began with the present moment's facts. There's something here. 
There's something happening here. And when he looked carefully at the source of his physical experience in the body, he found these four causes. The first being karma. Having the karma to be born as a human being. Having performed acts in the past. Resulting in birth as a human being. With the senses in a body and all that goes with it. The second is the mind as a source of some of our experience in the body. This can be easily seen when we notice how the mind conditions or affects our physical experience. When we're angry, when we get really boiling mad and clench our fists and grit our teeth and contract, what happens? We feel tightness, heat, vibration, hardness, trembling. The mental condition of anger influences our experience of the body. Not only anger, when we experience love, when we fall in love, when we appreciate a sunset, what do we feel? Light, bubbly, tingling, floating. The quality of appreciation or love in the mind conditions our physical experience of the body. Kama, the mind, we're also affected by, or our experience of the body is conditioned by, the climate, the conditions around us, whether it's hot or cold, windy, the sounds, the sights, the temperature around us affects the body. And there's also the effect of food. As we eat, it affects the body. We feel full, we feel hungry, we feel nourished. We digest. We go through the whole process involved in digesting and eliminating food. It keeps the body alive. It supports us. When we understand that these are the sources, these are the causes, the conditions for experiencing our body or how we experience a body, we can begin to make some adjustments. We can't control all of them. But we can have some limited um, control over some of these conditions. It happened when I was in Burma that the Burmese diet is terrible. For any of you who haven't been there, it's not a healthy place. Uh, mostly, you have a lot of meat swimming in oil with white rice. No fresh vegetables and uh, bad so needless to say, I had some pretty uncomfortable sensations in the abdomen. <laughs> there was a period of time for several weeks when I was doing practice in Burma where the distress in the body was so great, it was just so unbearable to, be, to experience the body. I just knew it had to be what I was eating. 
And so in the margins of my book where I was recording all of my experiences in sitting and walking, I made notes of each meal, what I ate and how much. When I went to the toilet, how much I slept. Trying to figure out how to get rid of unpleasant phenomena. It didn't work. It's endless. It wasn't until I stopped asking, what's wrong? And just asked, what's this? That I began to separate, to to begin to see things as they really were and not try to figure out how I could make them like I want them. When we know the conditioned nature of the body, of the material experience, it's easier to let go of the sense that it is I. When we see that this body, this experience of the body, is a result of conditions that we have no control over, some control, but not complete control, then we can give up, we can let go, we can step back from that fixed identity of this is who I am. When we leave the experience of the body as anatomy and enter and inhabit the body as a reality, then we move into the realm of true knowledge, true insight. When we see, when we see very carefully into the nature of the body, we see its fluxing nature. We see that it is hardness, softness, heat, vibration, tingling, pulsing. It's really difficult to say, that's me, hardness. That's me, vibrating. Heat, coolness. When we see the three characteristics of the body, no identification is possible. No attachment to it as me is likely. So the body is the first place that we can establish or the first of the four locations for establishing mindfulness. The Buddha did not say you have to get rid of the body, but rather the body is the very place to establish the mindfulness that leads to freedom. The second location, the second experience for establishing mindfulness is called Vedana, or those pleasant and unpleasant mental and physical experiences we all have. You recall in an earlier talk, a few of us have mentioned that in every moment, a sense object comes in contact with the sense base, giving rise to sense consciousness. Sight, the eye, seeing.
the thoughts, the feelings, the memories, the plans that create this thing called I. That process, the knowing process, the stream of consciousness, it, nor is it improved by what is known. That process is going to continue, knowing. Whether it's beautiful sight or an ugly sight, a beautiful sound or an ugly sound. The fact of knowing is not altered by what is thought, by what is observed, whether pleasant or unpleasant. But because we prefer pleasantness over unpleasantness, beauty over ugliness, softness or smoothness over harshness, because we prefer one to the other, we're open and accept and attach to the pleasant we shun, we close, and avoid the unpleasant. And in this way, we identify with preferences. The practice of mindfulness challenges us to open to all of the pleasant and all of the unpleasant. 
to be all of those things you're able to be. The entire range of pleasant and unpleasant. We can occasionally tap into, and some of you have that particular facility, of tapping into the knowing of knowing. Where the awareness of knowing or the recognition of presence of mind is most clear. And the object known is in the periphery. Where our identification is with the knowing process itself. As we look at our experience, as we look in the attics of our lives, full of cloudy dreams, unreal, we see residing there all sights, all sounds, all smells, all thoughts that we've ever had, ever had. They're in there, so to speak. Whether the thoughts are most gross, disgusting, or the most elevated, open-hearted, sincere feelings, whether the mind is pure or impure, awake or asleep, it's all in there waiting to be discovered with the key of mindfulness. The Buddha's map of the mind or consciousness includes the entire repertoire of what it is possible for any being to experience anywhere. And the Buddha said, the entire universe is to be discovered in this body. The entire universe of experience is discovered in this fathom-long body. There is no other universe. So as yogis here, we're encouraged to recognize and to acknowledge these momentary arisings of consciousness that are conditioned by the past, whether they're thoughts, feelings, sensations, memories, past, present, future, real or imagined. We recognize them. We acknowledge them. We recognize and acknowledge the object of our awareness whether, no matter what is randomly selected out of our environment, sights, sounds, smells, we recognize them. We recognize the feeling tone of pleasant or unpleasant. And we also are encouraged to acknowledge and to recognize the relationship we have to these experiences, to these things, to these objects, to these thoughts. whether they're the hindrances that obscure our knowing or whether the factors of enlightenment that brighten our knowing. We're encouraged to acknowledge them as we become aware of them. These mental conditions or these filters through which we view the world are the fourth dhamma or the location for establishing mindfulness. The hindrances, the factors of enlightenment, the five spiritual faculties, 
they're all the place where we establish mindfulness. It's not that we have to get rid of them before we can be mindful, the hindrances. They are the very source, the very root, the very place where we establish mindfulness, where we become aware, where we recognize presence of mind. All of us have spoken extensively about the difficulty of recognizing our identification with these states of mind. We so easily get caught in the hindrances and our old self-judgments and whatnot. So easy. There are two of these dhammas or two of these mental factors that I want to speak about in particular because they are tenaciously grasped as self, as who I am, and identified with. And the first of these is volition or intention, choice. And the second I want to speak about is recognition or memory. Volition or intention is that factor of the mind which wills a particular action to happen. Volition is the karmic force in our life. For the most part, each of us has settled into a habitual, repetitive way of relating to the conditions that we meet in life. We have our patterns, our fixed way of responding or reacting. That way, initially maybe a predisposition, has been conditioned by thousands, hundreds of thousands of individual acts of choice in this lifetime. And at this point in our lives, our habits have become a personality that we are identified with as who I am. This identification with a personality is extreme fixation on volition, intention. So strong, in fact, that until and unless we meet the idea and the practice of mindfulness, we'll be forever caught there. Forever believing that choice is who I am. I make the choice to be as I am. We can be so blinded by that identification, so caught in that uh, belief that we don't even recognize that we do have a choice. That we have a choice how to respond in each and every moment to the changing conditions. In practice here, we emphasize recognizing and acknowledging intentions. For this very reason, that when we become aware of intentions, we begin to notice the choice in our life. We begin to notice that moment when we are about to do something and we have a choice. Rather than reaching and acting and reacting habitually, 
we can choose how to act. Eventually, even with careful noting of intentions, we can see, as some yogis report, the choice to think and can catch that movement of the mind when there's the first impulse to leave the open awareness and coalesce into a thought and catch that moment before it happens and remain present without choice, without a limiting sense of who we are. Recognizing intentions like this greatly, greatly facilitates disidentifying with this mind. This mind that just is going here and there continuously by choice when you notice it. The second factor of Dhamma that I want to speak about is perception. Perception is that factor which recognizes something as being familiar. And we all know that experience. Seeing uh, each other. Seeing that which we recognize. Labeling. Calling things by their name. In and of itself, such perception is an absolute necessity in our lives. Its limitation comes when we identify with what is recognized. For example, when memories roll through the mind, don't we recognize them as mine? My memories. Memories of my life. This is identification with perception. Identifying with Assuming or believing that I am what I remember. When we do that, we, we, we identify ourselves, in my case, as you know, a young boy, teenager, an athlete, scholar, lover, a son, a good meditator, a bad meditator, whatever. And that is my personal history. But in fact, it is a very selective personal history. There's been a lot more go on in this stream of consciousness than what I choose to remember. But by my choice, I create this illusion of who I am by identifying selectively with memory. Memory is only another filter of the mind another momentarily arising and passing away phenomena. Often grasped is who I am. But with mindfulness, we can begin to see through it. We don't need to maintain our personal identity. Karma will take care of that. Karma will unfold for us. We don't need to somehow carry it along. I remember once being told by another teacher who said, we've all done everything so many times in the infinite past that we don't need to feel guilty about it. 
we also don't need to feel pride. We've done it all. Either pride or guilt is a firm, solid, fixated identification with memory. When we're locked into such identification, when we're really fix, fixedly attached to our selective personal history, it's extremely difficult to see any way out of where the momentum seems to be throwing us in the future. It's just really difficult to imagine doing something different, choosing a different way. But mindfulness momentarily breaks that hold or that enchantment with the past. It breaks that spell that we've been cast under by our attachment or our identification with memory. And instead of reverting back to my same old used to be, there's a gap in conditioning gap, an opening into the unknown, a place where infinite possibilities open before us. We don't have to respond out of habit. We can learn to live another way. With continuity of mindfulness, this opening to the unknown comes more frequently. And we can learn to leave the familiar behind in response to a question this morning. Why don't we recognize what's going on here? Because we've stopped comparing. We've opened to the unknown. We've left the past behind. We're in the present moment, choosing this. And as we open to the unknown, as we open continuously, to the endless possibilities. Then we become an explorer, a discoverer of the present. And that's where I'm going to make my happy home. No Shangri-La for me. It's here, in this moment. The Buddha said, when one abides ardent, clearly aware and mindful of the arising and vanishing of the four foundations of mindfulness, then pain, sadness, distress, sorrow, they disappear. They leave. Mindfulness, this present time, participatory awareness. We cease to be an automaton. Instead, we become this rather bold blossoming into the present. Where we discover the universe in the body and the galaxies in the mind. With mindfulness, we can live at home whatever happens. Maybe we should sit a couple of minutes.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.